This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about water availability for plants in the Southwest and what that might look like under climate change. It's a good show. Stay with us. Truthfully, these days I spend most of my time in front of the computer, and so a lot of my satisfaction comes from, um, from feeling like I'm trying to help society with what I do perceive as one of its biggest challenges. Um, if, if we don't start thinking about and recognizing climate change, I think there's going to be a time when my kids or my grandkids look back at our decisions and wonder, what were we thinking? And, and so I, I, these days, when I spend all day in front of the computer mostly, I then console myself with the idea that I'm trying to do something useful. This is Science Moab. Today we have research ecologist Dr. John Bradford of the U.S. Geological Survey's Southwest Biological Science Center in Flagstaff. Dr. Bradford studies how global change impacts terrestrial ecosystems and specifically how these changes influence water cycling. We talk about the ways that water availability and soil moisture influence the vegetation of the Southwest and what management actions we can take to help lessen the effects of climate change in the Southwest. We begin by exploring specific examples of how land use change influences hydrology of our southwestern forests. One of the most relevant um, instances of land use change influencing uh, hydrology and eco-hydrology is forest management. So if we thin forests, there tends to be more water moving uh, into the soils, and eventually, if it's wet enough, uh, out through the soil profile in runoff or in, in drainage out of the bottom of the soil profile. Um, it also influences uh, the availability of moisture to the plants, to the trees in the system, which is really where my um, focus is, is understanding the patterns of water availability to the plants themselves. And of course, one of the processes that influences that is land use practices and their, and their impacts on the vegetation structure. So if you thin the forest, you tend to create more moisture available for the remaining trees. Um, and that's one of the, the, the sort of central findings of some of our work at long-term experimental sites that range from um, northern Arizona all the way into New England, um, showing that, that thinning uh, has beneficial effects for the way that the remnant trees respond to drought. So the trees in really high-dense stands with a lot of competition um, tend to have their growth really depleted during drought in a way that doesn't happen where there's greater thinning. What does ecohydrology mean? How does water really move through the system? And what does that look like, especially in arid places like the Southwest? Yeah, so ecohydrology is a relatively new term um, in the uh, sort of natural resource management and science realm that really refers to the interface of hydrology and ecosystems. And um, the term is used both to refer to the dynamics of aquatic systems, so stream flows, uh, riparian dynamics, that's one facet of ecohydrology. Um, another facet of ecohydrology is, is sort of the, the uplands systems, um, and it relates to the, the, the movement of water 
that comes in as precipitation, um, if it infiltrates into the soil, if it runs off, and the patterns of, of water movement through the soil profile and what that means for the plants and, and everything else in response to them. Um, so all of that is the broad envelope of ecohydrology. In drylands, um, both of those systems, both the aquatic and the terrestrial, um, have some unique characteristics. And uh, my work really focuses on the terrestrial stuff. And in the terrestrial systems, um, ecohydrology is especially important in dryland systems because these are water-limited systems. And by that, uh, I mean that the, the plants and, and the terms of their productivity, their reproduction, um, is really influenced by their ability to get water from the soil. Um, and so uh, the patterns of where in the soil profile and when during the season that water is available makes a big difference on um, overall productivity of the plants, on the way that they compete with each other, on their likelihood of dying, um, uh, the potential for biological invasions for things like cheatgrass. Um, the, the ecohydrology in drylands uh, has a big role to play in terms of those outcomes. And it's, I think of it as a, as a metric to understand the dynamics of these dryland systems that's a little bit closer to what the plants really respond to than just thinking about temperature and precipitation. So a lot of ecology, um, especially as it first started in its roots, was, was in characterizing the relationships between climatic conditions and um, the ecosystem structure and function, and those dynamics both in space and time. Um, and that's really useful, and a lot of great insights came out of that, uh, thinking about ecohydrology and understanding the detailed dynamics of soil moisture uh, that is a function of, of climate and soils and vegetation, takes that a step further and thinks about uh, the detailed dynamics of, of where and when the plants can get water. So it, it should, theoretically at least, provide a, a more nuanced and hopefully more accurate perspective on how changes in climate will impact dryland vegetation. I'm curious if you would say that ecohydrology or just the hydrologic patterns of a landscape are the main um, variables structuring the plant communities of that landscape, or do you think it's more complicated? But just I'm thinking of how dry these regions are and wondering if that really is the main driver of plant community composition? Well, um, at the broadest brush, so broad um, topographic gradients, for example, like the San Francisco peaks around Flagstaff or the LaSalle Mountains around Moab, those big uh, elevational gradients, um, the, there's obviously some, some dramatic differences in the vegetation across those gradients that are responding uh, to, to differences in climate that you can understand just with climate alone. So um, I, I would say that you know, when, when you're interested in broad patterns, probably the ecohydrology is not essential. Um, the other thing that's true in these, in these uh, terrestrial ecosystems is that water access and water availability, while it's really important in drylands, it's certainly not the only factor. Um, biological invasions, I mean, cheatgrass, for example, has transformed large swaths of the western United States in part because of its interaction with disturbance regimes and fire. And so neither of those are ecohydrology per se. Um, I think that it's reasonable to think that ecohydrology does provide some perspective on how those unfold. For example, cheatgrass tends to do well in places that uh, have wintertime moisture that gets stored in the soil and then they utilize it um, as they grow throughout the winter and then the early spring. Um, so it's ecohydrology is, is one of many things that it provides a, uh, an additional perspective on understanding some of the details about how soils interact with, with climate. So 
For example, finer textured soils, the water will be slower to move in to the soil profile and more likely to run off and be lost from that, at least that upland system. Um, but once it gets in the soil, it's, it's held more tightly and is more insulated from evaporative demand. So uh, understanding what your soil profile looks like provides some perspective into how the water will move in and how it will be available for plants. I'm asking you an impossible question about what really structures our landscapes. And obviously it's complicated, but it's, it's cool to think about ecohydrology in a way that we don't usually, which is like you're saying, we climate precipitation, period. But yeah. thinking about where you're standing and the soil type that you're on will be influencing how much water is available to that plant community right yeah. there. Yeah, and that is one of the nice things about, about ecohydrology and, and taking the soil moisture perspective explicitly is that it allows you to get a, a more fine resolution perspective on what's going on. So if you just have climate, that's by definition relatively broad in its spatial extent. You, you, you know, it, it responds to, to gradients of kilometers, but it doesn't respond to gradients of a couple meters, whereas we all know we can go out in ecosystems and see dramatic differences in, 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 in over just a couple of meters. And understanding the soils is what helps you get a bigger perspective on that. And so you mentioned forests and how thinned or unthinned they are. And I'm just wondering what other things have influenced eco-hydrology of landscapes on a larger scale, land use changes or long-term climate changes, specifically in our area, been a big factor. Well, a lot of our, we have done some work looking at the long-term trajectories of soil moisture during different seasons in different parts of the Southwest and the West. Um, And we certainly are able to see patterns of dry periods of time or wetter periods of time and relate those to uh, events like important forest regeneration dynamics like the 1919 event uh, around Flagstaff. Um, Is that a time when a lot of Yeah, forests? a lot of the, yeah, there was a, a pretty substantial regeneration event of ponderosa pine in a large swath of northern Arizona. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. So there's the influence of, of sort of ecohydrology on those processes. Um, the other thing that we spend a lot of time doing is trying to think about climate change impacts, and, and in some cases, um, the in most cases, the historical perspectives that we see looking over time in the past uh, are not as dramatic as the changes that we're anticipating in coming decades. So it's we're, we're expecting to see more severe declines in soil moisture in most places. Okay, so talk talk to me about that. How do we? So you're talking specifically about soil moisture, but how do the predictions of temperature and precipitation interact to um, inform those anticipated declines in soil moisture? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, the the climate forecasts, uh, climate projections from the different models, they're all pretty consistent in their suggestions of increasing temperatures, and it's pretty consistent across the seasons. Um, they're a lot less consistent and certain in the forecasts for what we can anticipate for precipitation. So what our modeling approach does is take uh, at a daily time step um, estimates of what the weather conditions are going to be for a given day, maximum and minimum temperature, and precipitation for the day. And then we tell the model about the vegetation structure um, and its phenology, and we tell it about the soil profile, how deep the soil profile is and what its textures are. Is it sand or is it clay? And then the model simulates how the water moves uh, through the canopy, so it gets intercepted, how it gets intercepted by the litter layer, um, how much of it is able to infiltrate into the soil, and then how it moves and percolates down into the soil, and then is utilized by the plants to provide transpiration, which they need to do when they're growing. Um, And then 
if and when water moves out the bottom of the profile, how that happens. And so the model is really sort of a, a tool that integrates um, the demand that the atmosphere um, has for water. So the drier and hotter the atmosphere is, the faster the rates of evaporation from the soil will be, also the faster the rates of transpiration will be. And so the model allows us to understand that when you have increasing temperatures, you're going to have faster rates of water loss. So even if your precipitation under climate change has no differences in the future, we'll have faster rates of water loss and thus... Because it's hotter. Because it's hotter and, and, and everything evaporates faster when it's hotter because vapor pressure deficit, which is a metric of sort of the atmospheric demand for water, that goes up. Um, and then when the, when the plants open their stomates to, to um, take in carbon and photosynthesize, they're losing water and they're losing it faster when it's hotter. So the plants lose water faster with transpiration and the water evaporates faster out of the soil. So, um, so it does, it provides a way to quantify the interactions between temperature and precipitation and what that means for drought. Can you just run down for us, because I think it's interesting, um, so what's actually happening? What's the mechanism of killing the plant? You're talking about water being lost from the stomates, but maybe everybody's not familiar with these, with this whole process. And so what's actually, when there's limited soil moisture, what's actually happening to the yeah. plant? Yeah, so there's, there's been some really tremendous work in the Southwest um, by a number of scientists, especially over in New Mexico, looking at patterns of mm -hmm. and controls over tree mortality during drought events. And a lot of what they've, they've learned and discovered is that um, when you have extremely hot conditions, as we just talked about, you'll have a high atmospheric demand for moisture, so um, transpiration rates will want to go up. So as soon as the plants open their stomate, water is going to evaporate really rapidly because the air is hot and dry. Um, simultaneously, if you have very low soil moisture, it's really hard for the plant to take up water in its roots. And what the plant has to do in order to keep its leaves or needles um, photosynthesizing and keep the stomates open is be able to pull enough water in so that it can compensate for the water that's being lost out of the stomates. And if the soil gets really dry, then there'll be water get, being lost out the top and it's not able to be replenished. And so when that happens, the plants sort of have two strategies. They can either close their stomates and stop photosynthesizing and kind of wait out the drought, or they can open their stomates um, at least a little bit and try to continue taking in water and run the risk of essentially the, the, the water column in the trunk of the tree and the branches breaking and forming bubbles in there, and they call them xylem embolisms, and having those, um, and w once those bubbles are formed, they're hard, not impossible, but they're hard to repair, and so that can be another agent that, that keeps the tree from photosynthesizing in the future, and then can cause, cause death. So either way, the tree's running a risk, and different species have different sort of general strategies for coping with this. Um, and so the trees that close their stomates when things get dry and waited out uh, run the risk of experiencing what folks refer to as carbon starvation, where it eventually just runs out of um, the energy they need to stay alive. Um, or the other ones uh, that open their stomates um, run the risk of um, xylem failure in which they form embolisms. And, and that break in the water column. That's right, the break the in the water plant. column, yeah, can kill the plant. And this is a really active area of research, and there's been um, a bit of a debate in the literature about, you know, do trees die from one mechanism or the other? And uh, in some ways, it, it's relevant because if we're talking about the kind of processes that lead to carbon starvation, it's much more of a long-term press drought 
whereas the kind I'm of sorry, drought what do you mean by press press drought, drought I mean, a very long-term prolonged but not necessarily super extreme drought where you have dry soils but you might get a little bit of a rain here and there so that's not not super dry not super hot but it goes on for a long time that's one sort of drought that could easily lead a, a, a tree to die of carbon starvation if it just shuts its stomates and waits it out um, another type of drought, sort of an, an extreme, think of it as a pulse drought, in which you have a, a period of time which you get no rain at all, temperatures are extremely high, soils get very dry, um, and in that case, if the plant tries to keep its stomates open a little bit, it may experience that xylem failure and die. And so there's, there's some relevance to understand the mechanisms in terms of thinking about what do we look for in terms of climate forecasts and what they might mean for mortality. Do we have expectation based on the models for this region of whether or not we're going to be seeing press droughts or pulse droughts, or do we expect a combination of both? Um, probably going to be a combination of, of increasing severity of both. Uh, the, you know, it is possible, and I'm not a climatologist, but it is possible to get daily uh, climate forecasts for future periods. Um, I think it's a little bit, I think the uncertainty within the models about what the nature of climate extremes uh, is still pretty large. So we, I, don't, I think we have a pretty good feel about the directionality of temperature. It's going up. How much the climate extremes are going to increase is uh, an active area of research, I think. Um, but even if you keep the same amount of uh, sort of magnitude of variability, but you take your whole distribution and move it to a higher temperature, it means both you're going to have press droughts that occur on a regular basis, so those long, prolonged droughts, uh, just because the temperature is higher essentially all the time. So your summers are always going to be warmer, always going to have more rapid evaporation and transpiration. But when you tend to have the heat wave, that heat wave is going to be even hotter than it used to be. So I think it's reasonable to think we're going to have increasing severity of both those kinds of droughts. Mm -hmm. And so our forests and other uh, ecotypes around the southwest aren't just potentially going to experience decreased soil moisture, but there are other stressors active in these systems, especially in forests like wildfire and beetle outbreaks. And so I guess I'm just curious if you have thoughts on all of these interacting factors and how they're shaping up to structure our forests. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. Um, you know, my, my work really focuses on understanding the way that, that species and individuals and stands of, of trees or sagebrush or, or grass communities respond to climate change and climate fluctuations. But all that happens in the context of these other changes. Um, and one, one really obvious link that's become well recognized within the scientific community, especially for trees, is that if you have several years that are not very good for growth and an individual is not able to photosynthesize and and um, create enough carbon reserves then it's quite vulnerable in the next several years to things like insect outbreaks and so it's more vulnerable to other agents of mortality for the tree mm -hmm. itself and the system as a whole becomes more susceptible to wildfires at least because the fuel moisture goes down it's drier yeah, yeah it's drier everywhere <laughs> and so there's certainly a lot of interactions among these and i think in a lot of systems even though my the focus of my work is on climate change uh, i think there's a reasonable case to be made that uh, in the next couple of decades the mechanisms that are going to cause widespread changes in systems for example like sagebrush are probably going to be the dynamics between invasive species and, and disturbances, mostly fire. Mm -hmm. um, it's that feedback process that's been going on for the last few decades that's probably going to accelerate some with climate change, but even if it stays on its current trajectory, it suggests that large areas of sagebrush are going to be converted to invasive grasslands. Um, and so it's, we're always thinking about our work in the context of those other agents of change on the landscape 
And I think it's entirely true that in the short term, many of those are what, what the managers are rightfully focusing on. And so speaking of managing the landscapes, are, you talked a little bit about thinning before. Um, what are the ways in which we can use restoration and management to, to make more resistant and resilient or resistant, I guess, in this case, but potentially resilient systems? Um, are there ways that we can address these changes? Yeah, I think that, that at the longest, at the, sort of the longest perspective, thinking about the changes we're expecting over the next several decades, um, an idea that's been uh, emerging a little bit is this notion of pre-sturation, of thinking about identifying what the plant communities and the vegetation structure um, should look like so that it's well-suited for the conditions we anticipate in several decades. Um, and we're getting a better idea of being able to forecast those conditions. So if we can figure out what, what, where, where we want to, these systems to move toward, we can use the restoration activities and the substantial amount of funds that go into restoration efforts to guide those systems in that way. And maybe think about seeding or planting. Um, the ideal strategy is probably seeding or planting species and species assemblages that are suitable under both current conditions and future conditions, if you can find them. Because then, even if things don't change as much as we think, um, will still be su um, suitable even now. And so that's the ideal sort of silver bullet is to think about um, identifying those players in the community that will be um, vibrant for uh, both now and in the future in the long term. In the much shorter term, I think there are also um, opportunities for resource managers to take advantage of some of the new emerging climate knowledge about relatively short-term forecasts, so seasonal to subseasonal, maybe 3 to 6 to 12 to 18 months. The National Weather Service has forecasts out there for what we're expecting for drought on those kind of time periods. Managers can tap into that and start informing their management decisions to decide, is this really a good time to be investing my restoration dollars in this location? Maybe I should spend them somewhere else where we're expecting a wet enough condition that we won't have a failure. Um, whereas the place, you know, one place might be expecting a, a severe drought next summer and spending a lot of money in seeding that may not pan out. Um, so I think there's tools that we can help the managers uh, cope more effectively with current climate variability as well as plan for long-term climate trajectories. What first got you interested in this work? I, my interest, I think, came from um, an interest in both uh, I enjoyed quantitative sort of stuff. Uh, as When I was in college, I always liked uh, math and the little tiny bits of computer science sort of stuff that I did, so I always enjoy that kind of stuff. But I also spent several years working as a backcountry ranger for the Forest Service in my summers in Colorado and and really had a hard time imagining a career in which I didn't get to spend time thinking about the dynamics of ecosystems. Um, and when I first started college, I didn't even know that being uh, you could be a research scientist and, and, and do this for a living and get paid to think about the dynamics of systems. So that's kind of how it all started, I guess, and where my interest uh, emerged. Um, truthfully, these days I spend most of my time in front of the computer, and so a lot of my satisfaction comes from, um, from feeling like I'm trying to help society with what I do perceive as one of its biggest challenges. Um, if, if we don't start thinking about and recognizing climate change, I think there's going to be a time when my kids or my grandkids look back at our decisions and wonder, what were we thinking? And, and so I, I, these days, when I spend all day in front of the computer mostly, I then console myself with the idea that I'm trying to do something useful. So. <laughs> and then what do you enjoy about being a scientist? 
Um, I guess two things, two, two parts of it I find really satisfying. One is, is engaging with the managers, um, trying to talk to, to resource managers and thinking about what, what they need, what they're doing. I, I enjoy the publications most when I can actually put them in the hands of a manager that, that might read it, might find it useful. It's, I think developing actionable information for managers is actually a lot harder than getting papers published. Um, and so that's, um, as I, as I, of the last few years especially, really become much more interested in trying to, to jump over that hurdle and bridge that gap. Uh, and when it, when it happens, um, and the few times I feel like I've been able to do that with some success, it's been very rewarding. Because you feel like all this work you're doing might actually influence something on the ground, which is nice. Um, the other thing that I do really enjoy is I, I, I enjoy data analysis and, and playing with data. It's, it's fun. Um, getting to think about, about some, learning something about a system that you didn't know is really cool. And it, does, it doesn't happen as often as I would like, but it's really fun when it does. Theme music for our show is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by BYU's Charles Red Center for Western Studies. And the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.